If you turn with me in the pages of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 12, and then we'll turn in the Catechism to the teaching on the second commandment. You shall not make any image by which to worship God. Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like to begin reading at verse 14 in the earlier verses. Actually, at the start of the chapter, we have those words we considered this morning in part, or I referred to about looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He goes on to call us to endure the Lord's chastening or discipline. And then we come to Hebrews 12 at verse 14 as we hear God's word, and we're particularly want to note the, the last verses of the chapter about coming to Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, verse, 12 uh, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, And the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape him who refused escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. God's word. If you take out the forms and prayers book to turn to the catechism, we'll look at Lord's Day 35 here, as the catechism now is expounding to us the Law of God, the Ten Commandments, that we may know how to live a grateful life to our Lord. Page 243. 
page 243. And question 96 there asks, now, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? The answer that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. And the question 97, may we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Let's bow before God and ask for his blessing, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to be instructed by your word. We thank you for the living word. We thank you for the inscripturated word. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who is the word. And we pray, Lord, that you teach us tonight about the worship that pleases you and that you give us hearts to follow your command, knowing that in it we are blessed and you are God, the one who's worthy is glorified. Help us now, we pray, that your word be preached truthfully and received by, with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We move tonight then from the first commandment to the second commandment, and you remember how we easily remember that, that the first commandment tells us who we should worship. No other gods. Worship God alone. The second commandment tells us how we should worship. Do not worship God by way of an image, by way of images. The book of Hebrews is written to believers who are enduring or will be enduring persecution again. And they're tempted, many of them, to revert back to Judaism Even though Christ has come, there's some, maybe they're having pressure by the Jewish community, by family members, and they're tempted to go back to the ceremonies and the rituals of of the laws of Moses. And they're being called to persevere. And the way the writer of Hebrews keeps urging them on is to say, you're pilgrims. You're, You're traveling to this city that has foundations. You have to live by faith. You don't have everything by sight. And you need to lean forward and press on. And how do we do that? Well, worship is a, is a taste of heaven, isn't it? Worship is the, the pleasures of the city to come breaking in upon our lives. It's in worship that we, we taste of the city to which we are headed. And that's a wonderful thing. Years ago, when our children were young, we recognized that if if they hadn't seen their grandparents for a few months, then when we did see them, the children would be a little timid, take them a little while to warm up. And then we, we started Skyping or, or video conferencing, and we, we did that right before we came out to Oregon. And we noticed the difference that the kids in the airport, when they saw Grandpa Grandma from afar, they ran to them and hugged them. They, they had that connection. They had been in their presence, as it were, online, and that gave to them that assurance, that confidence, they knew who they were. Well, in Christian worship, we are lifted up to heaven to know our God. We, we taste of the joys to come. But the only way this will work is if we worship God truly, just like it wouldn't work in that illustration if our kids were video conferencing with some grandparents somewhere, 
So it won't work for us unless our fellowship and worship is with the true God. And so worship matters, and worshiping the right way matters, because the true God can only be worshipped in God's way. And if we worship in that way, then truly it is an otherworldly worship. It's a transcendent worship. We are, we are caught up, Hebrews says, to Mount Zion and to the festal assembly of angels. It's a glorious thing, Christian worship is. And we want to look at that tonight, how we should worship God according to the second commandment. Well, three things. First of all, a holy God requires reverential worship. Secondly, a speaking God requires then humble listening And thirdly, a mediating God. So we think about Christ, our mediator. A mediating God requires joyful confidence. Well, first of all, if we worship the true God, we must know that he is holy. He is utterly different. God is not just a big human. God is an utterly distinct and transcendent being. He alone is eternal. He alone is uncreated. He alone is high and lifted up. Sometimes we tend to think the Old Testament is about a holy God, and now we've gotten past that in the New Testament, but, but clearly not. At Mount Sinai, they saw the holiness of God. Exodus 24 says, The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. But as you come to the book of Hebrews now, in the New Testament, though the writer of Hebrews has much, as we'll see, to say about the nearness of God now through our mediator, The holiness of God has not in the least bit disappeared, but we read at the end of the chapter that we must serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. God is awesome. God is glorious. God is the just judge. The writer of Hebrews often warns that if you you apostatize, if you desert this God, his judgment is severe. It's an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Psalm 99 says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. If in worship we lose something of the holiness of God, then we lose something of God. You can't have God apart from his holiness because this is who he is. And then if you do that, if you set aside the holiness of God and therefore set aside something of the true character of God, then you have to look for something else to to bring excitement back into worship, something to prop up God or to prop up the imaginary gods, something to spice up worship, to captivate our hearts or to awaken Our souls. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has a little book or pamphlet about repentance. And he has some insightful and well-put comments there. But one of them is this. He says, There was a time when four simple words were enough to bring out goosebumps on the necks of our ancestors. The words, Let us worship God. Not so for 21st century evangelicals. Now there must be color, movement, and audiovisual effects. God cannot be known, loved, praised, and trusted for his own sake. Whenever in worship we're bored, then we have to ask, you know, what what is it? Is God ever a boring God? Well, no. So 
Is God not being presented to us? Or our hearts not set upon God? It's one of those. If we believe the scriptures that God is utterly unique, that he is gloriously wonderful, then it should be our pleasure to know him as he is, or, or better put, to know him as he's revealed himself to us. We should want to worship him as he wants to be worshipped. He's the glorious being. He tells us how we may approach him and how we worship him, how we can honor him, how we can be satisfied in him. If God is God, then God gets to determine how we should worship him. When I was in college, we had a friend that we began calling by a nickname we made up that wasn't real flattering. We should have known better, but we were college sophomores. And so... We called him by this nickname for a bit, and then one time, I remember he turned to me. He was a guy who could laugh at most things, but he turned and said, would you stop calling me that? And then he gave this profound reason as to why I ought to stop calling him by that nickname. Four words, he said, I don't like it. I don't like it. Well, I thought, you know, since we're talking about him, it's his person. He probably has a right to determine how we should call him. But, you know, if we're coming to worship God, doesn't he have a right to tell us what we should call him, how we should approach him, the kind of worship we should bring before him? Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire before the Lord, and God said, I don't like it. And he consumed him with fire. Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the Ark of the Covenant, and God said, I don't like it. And he struck him dead. Jeroboam set up the golden calves in the northern kingdom. And God said, I don't like it. And every king in Israel gets evaluated by that, that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam. God demands that worship be according to his desires. But the second commandment, when it says don't make an image of God, isn't just giving some preferences or some subjective likes or dislikes from God's heart, but it's actually about who God is. If you worship God through an image, you don't worship the true God. That's, that's the problem, you see. When the second commandment says, don't make an image by which to worship or bow down, by which to try to serve the true God through an image, it's saying you can't actually worship the true God through an image. Why not? Well, listen to these words from Deuteronomy 4. As Moses recounts to God's people the Sinai experience. He says, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image. A little later, take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God." What's the point? Well, Moses is saying you can't make an image of God. You saw no image of God. You saw no form. When the second commandment says don't make an image, it's saying you you can't make an image of God. You can't. 
He can't be comprehended by an image. To worship God by an image is not to lift up the true and living God, but to worship God by an image is to construe God according to our imaginations. Images, we could put it this way, images always lie. Images always misrepresent God. There is no image that portrays the true and living God, except one, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, the exact representation of his being, the book of Hebrews says. In contrast to the glorious majesty of God, images made by men are Hebrews, or rather Deuteronomy 4.28, they are the work of men's hands. They're man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Image worship is to bow down to something that has been made by our hands. You remember I mentioned that last week. Isaiah mocks the idolaters who drag a tree out of the forest and half of the wood they burn in the fire and the other half they make into an image and bow down to. And Isaiah chapter, in the 40s there, chapter 40, God talks about how he measures off the heavens. He's the almighty God and, and he knows all things. No one has ever counseled him. And he's this glorious being before whom the nations are a drop in the bucket. And then the Lord says, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And so you see, this is the point of false worship. It doesn't represent the true God. No image made by man can accurately reflect the glory and the majesty and the greatness and the power and the might of God. What can you compare me to, God says? Are you going to create something and that will represent me? To make an image of God is to mock his majesty. The only image authorized to represent God is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved, and whom he has said here, this is who I am. The Son of God has come down from heaven and shown to us the Father. But other than Christ, we may not seek to worship God by any image. Now that second commandment, as the Catechism makes clear, isn't only about images, but it sets before us a principle that we may in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. We call that the regulative principle of worship, that we may not worship God in any other way but the way that he's prescribed in Scripture. When we see how much is written in the Bible about the true worship of God, it's rather interesting, isn't it, that somehow in Christian worship it's thought that this is the place we have the most liberty and the most room to be inventive. But in the Old Testament, there was nothing God was more prescriptive about and restrictive about than worship. God was very particular. God cares about how God is worshipped. So a holy God requires reverential worship. But then notice, secondly tonight, that a speaking God requires humble listening. God is a speaking God. God talks to us. God makes himself visible to us through his word. Deuteronomy 4, you heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. 
Now, God, as we said, has appeared in the person of his son, and his son has took on human flesh, right? Jesus walked upon earth, and you could see him, you could touch him. If you had a camera, you could take a picture of him, right? But remember that seeing the flesh of Jesus was not salvation. How many people looked upon Jesus and were not saved? How many people looked upon Jesus and did not know he was the Son of God? The only way to recognize Jesus as God was to hear his voice, to bow before his word. The Father, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory of Christ was revealed, he said, this is my beloved Son, hear him, right? And Jesus, in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I know them and they follow me. The peculiar characteristic of Christian worship is that it is word-based. It is word-dominant. This is how God appears among his people in his word. This is how God glorifies himself among his church, by his word. God is sovereign and primary. We are to be humbly and submissively receptive. God speaks we listen. That's Christian worship. God speaks, and we believe, and we obey, and we praise him for what he says. Image worship is not the position of being receptively submissive, but image worship is rather to be self-determining and controlling. Those who make images by which to worship God, they sin against the freedom of God. They try to control God through an image. You know, that's often how images were used in the Old Testament days. When people made images, they often knew that the image they worshipped, if you asked them, you know, they're theologians, they would tell you, well, the image is not actually our God. You see, our God is the Son. But we make an image of the Son so that we can have fellowship with the Son or the power of the Son can be communicated to us in a usable way. When people make images of God or when people try to worship God in ways he hasn't commanded, they are trying to control God, to manipulate God, to capture God, to own God. There's that memorable event in 1 Samuel 4 where the Israelites get killed by the Philistines, 4,000 die. And then they say, why, why didn't God go with us? Why did God give us in the hand of the Philistines? And they don't ask God the question, but they say, here's what we'll do. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And then the Lord will be with us. And so the Ark comes into the camp of Israel, and there's all this shouting, and the Philistines are trembling. What is this over there in Israel? They hear that the gods of Israel have come into their camp, and the Philistines are shaking their boots. What are we going to do? Well, what does God do when his people treat him like a dog on a leash? Think they've got the ark, and they're going to pull God into battle. He will have to bless them. Well, God lets them get slaughtered in an even greater way, and the ark gets captured. And this, this, this ark of the covenant turns into nothing more than a wooden box when God desires to desert it. Because God is teaching his people that he can't be manipulated by pagan techniques. 
And if that's true, the Ark of the Covenant that God had commanded to be built and that God often used in worship, if even the Ark of the Covenant can turn into nothing but a wooden box, then what of all of our inventive worship by which we think that we're going to create this experience that brings God near? Any attempt to bring God down from heaven through an image to capture his power or to capture his blessing or to make the inaccessible God now accessible to us is repulsive to the Lord. Now, false worship has an appeal, doesn't it? Worshiping God through visible emblems instead of a word-based worship is, is attractive, right? The writer of Hebrews writes to Christians who are struggling with this because, you see, to give up pure Christianity and to go back to Judaism is to engage in a bunch of ceremonies that, that have these tangible sensory elements that are quite appealing. You can see and you can touch. But the writer of Hebrews has been teaching that that those things of the law of Moses, those, those ceremonies, those sacrifices, those rituals, circumcision, these were so many types and shadows that find their fulfillment in Christ. They were the lesser things pointing forward to the greater thing, and Christ has come. And now if you abandon Christ to go back to those things, you're missing the whole point. But the attraction, the allurement was there. Hewell Jones, in his commentary on Hebrews, writes, So much of Judaism consisted in what was visible, and impressively so. But it was the invisible that was substantial and eternal. The visible was only symbolical and temporary. And then he adds this, Similarly, in the Christian church today, Fascination with visible things, not to mention preoccupation with them, from images to icons, symbols to smells, robes to rituals, is a sure sign that true spirituality is either absent or on the decline. Whenever you see in the Christian church a running after now the visuals, it's not a sign of health. You see, true Christianity acknowledges that we don't have everything yet. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says we live by faith, right? We don't live by sight. So if our worship becomes a worship of sight, then we've lost track of what we're headed to. The goal of our salvation is before us as invisible. We behold it by faith. Faith grasps the future. Mount Sinai, the writer says, could be touched, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, and you can't see that yet. You don't touch that yet. And so our enjoyment of that city to come is mediated by the word and received by faith. God's word is his primary method of communicating himself to us and so we prize God as we prize him in his word. 
And we can't create anything else by which to pull God closer or build a tower to heaven. We can't come up with any other means or rituals or symbols or visible things. God's given the word and two sacraments. Two visual aids which are meaningless apart from the word. So we are to prize the word and worship and never to grow weary of a word-based worship. It's all we have. Dr. Ferguson, in that pamphlet, a little book on repentance I mentioned, laments how modern worship is reverting back to medieval distortions that were found in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church. He writes these words, Worship is increasingly becoming a spectator event of visual and sensory power rather than a verbal event in which we engage in a deep soul dialogue with the triune God. Contemporary worship tends to focus on what, quote-unquote, happens in a spectacle rather than on what is heard in worship. Aesthetics, be they artistic or musical, are given priority over bowing underneath the authority of what God says. More and more is seen, less and less is heard. There is a sensory feast, but a hearing famine. This is purely medieval, not evangelical. Ferguson notes that in the Middle Ages, they thought preaching wasn't doing it for them. In many cases, they are right, because... The priests were not preaching the true word, and they were often preaching in Latin, words people didn't even understand. And so there was a a movement to other things, whether it be to the stained glass windows and statues to teach the people, or to the medieval mystery plays, or to colorful rituals. There was in the Middle Ages a sensory feast, but a hearing famine. Today, the church is often headed in the same direction when preaching is replaced with drama and the speaking of God's word is obscured with visual technology and the method of teaching is not the teaching and receiving of the scriptures but a stimulation of the senses and worship becomes a spectator event in which, as Ferguson puts it, we luxuriate in what others do rather than a congregational event in which God speaks and we respond, a deep soul dialogue between God and us. Worship is to be a profound conversation between God above and us on earth. God speaks first because he is God. God speaks first because we need him. God speaks most because his word is far more important than our words. God speaks first and most because his voice gives us life, and without his word we have nothing. So Ecclesiastes 5 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few." Christian worship is word-based because that is the way in which God communicates and gives himself to us. 
The writer of Hebrews says at the beginning of this letter, in those memorable words, that God has in the past, at various times and in various ways, spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things. God has spoken to us in his Son. Christ is the true and the incarnate Word of God. And where do we meet this Lord Jesus, who is the Word and the communication of God to us? We meet Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. Christ comes to us in the Word. The fact that Christ is calm has not done away with the Word of God, but it has intensified it, it has heightened it. Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. The writer of Hebrews says over and over, if you reject now the word of Christ, there's nothing left. Nothing left. We may think that we enhance worship with a bunch of visual aids and sensory excitement. But brothers and sisters, let's always be aware that feeling something does not by itself in the least bit mean that we have fellowship with God. Our culture judges everything by feelings. And if you had a quote-unquote worship experience by which you felt something, you were inspired, you were moved, you were touched, you were saddened, you were lifted up, then you must have been in the presence of God, it's thought. But it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. There are great entertainers in this world. That were we to bring them in here tonight, and though they didn't know a word of Scripture, they could put you into laughter or into tears or make you feel like you could run a marathon. But that's not worship. Worship is to know God by his word. And for that, then, we don't need high-tech auditoriums with fancy lights and smoke machines and extraordinary audio and video and highly trained artists and production professionalism. All we need is someone to speak the word of God to us and hearts that say, Amen, praise the Lord. That's worship. Christian worship throughout the ages has taken place not only in church buildings, but in forests, in ships, in caves, in houses, and in prisons. Old Testament worship required the temple. New Testament worship is highly portable. And if we come to the point where we think the essence of worship is something we could never do in a forest or never do in a cave or never do in a prison, because we don't have a high-tech stage, then maybe we've lost sight of what the essence of worship is. Now, I don't want to give up the microphone. I like this. I don't have to yell or lose my voice. We enjoy the organ and piano. We're grateful for lights and for air conditioning. But what is the essence of worship? 
It's that the living God, by Christ, through his word, in the Spirit, speaks. And we say, Amen. A speaking God requires humble listening. Finally, a mediating God requires joyful confidence. The glory of New Testament worship is that God has sent his own son to be our mediator. The writer of Hebrews, in addressing Christians who are tempted to throw in the towel and go back to Judaism, is saying, you don't get it. Christ is infinitely superior to all the Old Testament priesthood. And so the writer contrasts Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, two places of God's self-revelation. Mount Sinai was an event of sensory experience. There were things to see and hear. You could touch the mountain. There was a a wind you could feel. There was smoke you could smell. There There was fire to see. And what was it all? It was terrifying. Terrifying. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it's to be killed and, and not killed by laying hands on it, but by stoning it or shooting it with an arrow. Don't come even near the beast that touched the mountain, lest you become contaminated. It was, it was so dreadful. It was so awful, the worship there at Mount Sinai, that they begged with Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You speak. Let God speak to you. You speak to us, but no more. It's overwhelming. The whole revelation of Mount Sinai was a crash course in the distance between sinners and a holy God. God was emphasizing the barrier and the separation between the Holy One and a sinful people. And so he struck terror into the hearts of his people. And then the tabernacle and the temple that were built, they continued to proclaim the distance. With the wall around it. With the thick curtains in between, they were all saying, distance, holy God, beware. But then the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I think he means that you've come by faith, you've come by conversion, by believing in Christ, you have come now. To the new Jerusalem. Not a place now of terror and threatening, but a place of joy and gladness. A place of festal celebration where angels assemble in joy before the Lord God. And how is this possible now? We've come so near to God. Is it that we're a better people than the Israelites? No. But he says, this is how. Verse 24. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, but Christ's blood proclaims forgiveness. It it tells us that he's exhausted the wrath of God against us. Now you see, many inventions introduced into Christian worship today are are attempts to bring God close or bring us close to God. They're attempts to bridge this gap and to give us an experience of God. But in this quest for man-made worship, Jesus Christ is belittled because the bridge we need between 
the holy God seated in heaven. And us as sinful people is very simple and it's been provided. It's the mediator, Jesus Christ. And so the book of Hebrews emphasizes over and over again the free access we have now to come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If Christ has opened the Holy of Holies in heaven above to us, the very dwelling of God by his precious blood, if we have free and confident access in our worship into the throne room of heaven, then maybe the problem in our worship when we feel bored or unfulfilled or we need a little something more, maybe the problem is not our worship service, but our hearts that have not recognized how far we were from God, haven't appreciated how much Christ has done for us, haven't meditated upon the wonder that Christ is the final word from heaven, the very mediator provided by God, For if the worship at Mount Sinai, mediated by Moses, was an unforgettable event, then is the New Testament worship mediated by Jesus Christ, God's Son, a boring event? The second commandment is God's gracious protection, not only upon his glory, but upon our souls. Because if we worship God in a way he hasn't commanded, not only do we provoke God's jealousy, but we impoverish our own souls. All that we need is found in Jesus Christ, the one who bore our sins and who as our high priest brings us to God. And if the Holy Spirit will visit us in our worship and give us faith, to cling to this Christ, then we may know again every Lord's day that we have come not to a Mount Sinai, which was a frightful experience, but we have come all the way to Mount Zion, to the very dwelling of God, to the festal place of angels, to the place where saints are registered as the children of God, justified and made perfect, to the great assembly above angels and lifted up saints who've gone before us, that we as one are assembled through Christ Jesus in his name. May God help us in all of our struggles in worship to believe this and to keep, therefore, the second commandment. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy of Christian worship. And we acknowledge, O Lord, that we comprehend so little of the wonder of what you've given to us. We are ashamed, O Lord, that, that we are often bored and indifferent. We, we feel unmoved. O Lord, when you have given your own beloved Son, 
We pray that you would help us to believe the things that you've written, and that you'd help us to understand correctly from your word, that you help us to believe when we don't have the feelings, that you help us to trust when the world says something else. Oh, Father, may we be content with the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we, in seeking you through him, experience the blessings and the joys of Mount Zion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.